want to invite you to turn with me to the book of Titus. Last week, Greg launched us into a, a mini-sermon series we're doing here through the month of January before we go back to the book of Romans in, in February. And we're calling this series Habits of Grace, Why We Do What We Do. It's kind of an annual rhythm for us at the beginning of each new year to give our attention to habits of grace, channels through which God communicates himself to his people. And Greg launched us last week by preaching from 1 Thessalonians 3 and explaining why it is that building one another's faith is our ministry priority at Emmaus Road Church. Faith means taking God at his word. It means relying on God to be and to do everything that he promises to be and to do for his people. Faith means trusting God's promises. And faith matters because God is glorified. He is honored. He is exalted when his people trust in him. So building faith is our priority. But do you know how God intends to strengthen and establish your faith in his word? What are the means through which God secures your glad allegiance to himself? What does God use to strengthen your confidence in his promises to you? Knowing how God intends to build your faith is crucial. It's vital to you personally. As, as we heard last week, we are all susceptible to shifting faith. Paul speaks in 1 Thessalonians 3 about being established and strengthened in faith, not moved by afflictions. But every one of us is susceptible to this shifting confidence, shifting our confidence from Jesus to ourselves, to our possessions, to our surroundings. And when your confidence shifts away from Jesus, every single time, you will feel rising anxiety, fear, frustration, dissatisfaction, discontentment. Don't you feel that need to be strengthened in your faith regularly? But shifting faith is not just a private phenomenon. Corporately, churches are vulnerable to doctrinal drift. In our own times, it seems like fault lines have opened up between professing believers. And when churches and entire denominations compromise, we take sober warning that churches must be established corporately, collectively in our faith, that we would not be moved. And then there's the unbelieving culture all around you. Historically, the Bible and Christianity have been a pretty big deal in American culture. And it's impossible to deny today that the secularization of our society. So we give our attention to God's word in a time like this. If you believe that Jesus meant for his church to, to disciple the nations, then you care about this question. How? How is God going to do that? How is he going to build our faith? How is he going to strengthen his church? How is he going to disciple the nations? For the answer to that, let's visit the island of Crete, which sounds really nice this time of year. On the island of Crete, a church was planted in the mid-first century. Crete's the largest island off the mainland of Greece, located in the Mediterranean Sea, about 100 miles south of, of Greece. And Paul's letter to Titus in the New Testament, to a minister of the gospel on the island of Crete, contains instructions from the apostle to one of his ministry partners. Titus 1.5 identifies the occasion. He says, Paul says to Titus, this is why I left you in Crete, 
so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So Paul left Titus in Crete to establish order in this young church plant in the middle of a hostile culture. And now he's following up because the Cretan church faced problems. They, they, they were up against problems inside the church and outside the church. For starters, the church in Crete existed in the middle of a culture that was notoriously beastly. That, that's actually the word that Paul uses, Titus 1, 12 through 13. He quotes one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, who said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And then Paul adds, this testimony is true. The Cretans were notorious in the ancient world for their immorality. But the problems weren't just out there in Crete outside of the church. The problems are never just outside. Inside the church, false teachers were stirring up controversies, Titus 1, 10 through 11. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. And these people in the church, they appeared outwardly religious, but they were spiritually dead, Titus 1.16. They professed to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are destable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. And in chapter 3, 9 through 10, Paul warns Titus to avoid foolish controversies and anyone who stirs up division in the church. And yet... The problem's not just that faction of people going astray inside the church, not just the false teachers. It never is. Genuine Christians have their own sin to deal with. Amen? From Paul's instructions to Titus, we get a sense of the sinful patterns that remained in the genuine believers in the church in Crete. Whenever a New Testament author is saying, address this and encourage people in this and tell people not to do that, it must be because some people in the church were doing that. And so from this letter, we gather that some of them who were genuinely saved must have still been arrogant, quick-tempered, violent. Some of them drank too much. There's an instruction here about warning the older women not to drink too much. Some were greedy. Some were argumentative. Some were dishonest. Some of the men were undisciplined. Some of them lacked self-control. Some of the women were gossips and slanderers. Some of them resented their husbands and their children. Basically, Crete wasn't that different than America today. You've got a culture that's wicked, and you have a church that's threatened by false teachers, and you have Christians who are dealing with remaining sin. Sound familiar? So what is God's plan to address all of that? How does God sanctify his people? How does he make you more holy in your actual life day by day? How does God build his church? How does God protect his church from false teaching? And how does God mean to assert his grace in the midst of a dark and rebellious world? I'll turn with me to Paul's letter to Titus, and I'm going to read Titus 1, verses 1 through 9, but I'm going to preach from the entire book. So I want to invite you to stand with me if you're physically able out of reverence for God and his word because there is no book like this book the word of the Lord. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which 
God who never lies promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, would you speak to us and keep your promise in Isaiah 55 that you would not let your word ever return to you void but cause it to accomplish all that you purpose. Cause it to water our hearts, hearts that are hard and dry, hearts that are stagnant. Oh God, water our hearts. Nourish us by your word that we might bear fruit for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. According to Paul's letter to Titus, God builds his church, through the preaching of his word. God builds his church through the preaching of his word. That, that's the main point of Titus, and you can see it repeated in the dozen or so commands that Paul gives to Titus. First, right off the bat, Paul's directive to Titus in Crete, his mission is appoint elders in the church there. Appoint elders, or they're called in verse 7, overseers, that is, pastors. And the function of elders or pastors or overseers is to function as God's stewards. Just like a steward is entrusted with managing the valuable property of another, elders are stewarding, they are managing, they are guarding God's word and protecting God's people. And, And that explains why all of the qualifications for elders that Paul gives to Titus in verses 6 through 9 have to do with two things, exemplifying God's word and expositing God's word, exemplifying it and expositing it. The character of elders must be a living exhibit of God's grace, and they also have to be competent in one thing. Verse 9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. Of all the skills and abilities and competencies that you might think would be listed, there's only one thing. Hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And that right there in verse 9 is the theme of the whole letter to Titus. Teach sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. God's plan for building his church is doctrinally sound pastors who do two things teach sound doctrine, and rebuke opponents of sound doctrine. And those are really just two sides of one coin. Just like a man whose love and care and tenderness toward his wife and children, that same love for his family is going to show up as 
dangerous hostility toward any home intruder in the middle of the night, right? Same thing. Because he loves his family, he is hard on intruders in his home. Elders can't teach sound doctrine without also standing against false doctrine. And then throughout the letter, Paul just elaborates on that, expands on that. He issues about a dozen commands to Titus. Now just listen for the theme in these commands. Chapter 113, sharply rebuke false teachers. Chapter 2.1, teach what accords with sound doctrine. 2.6, urge the younger men. 2.15, declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Chapter 3, verse 1, remind them. 3.8, I want you to insist on these things. 3.10, warn a person who stirs up division. 3.14, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. Do you hear the main point reverberating through all of those commands? Speak, teach, exhort, urge, insist, warn, rebuke, declare, remind, assert, The vocabulary is rich and varied, but the point is singular. The way God builds his church is through the preaching of his word. So preaching is the central activity in the life of the local church. And not just bloviating talking of any kind. Gospel-saturated, Christ-exalting, biblically faithful expository preaching. Biblically faithful preaching is how... God builds his church. It's how he protects his church. It's how he makes the nations turn to his Christ. God wills for his word to be proclaimed, and that's why we are committed to keeping the preaching of God's word central to the life of our church. The letter to Titus resonates with this mandate to pastors, preach the word, teach the word. There's another side of that equation, right? It's not just like preach in an empty room. Titus calls you to listen when God speaks, when God asserts his grace through the preaching of his word. That's implied in Paul's last command to Titus in chapter 3.14, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. And that Greek word translated, let our people learn, is related to the word for disciple. What do disciples do? Disciples are learners. So to be a disciple of Jesus Christ is to be a lifelong learner. Disciples of Jesus listen to Jesus. They are attentive to Jesus. Belonging to a local church where you regularly sit under the preaching of God's word together with other members of that church, it's not the only means of grace by any means. Not the only means of grace in your life, but it is one of the most significant ways that God asserts himself in your life. In his book, Habits of Grace, David Mathis says, few practices will energize and affect your Christian life as much as sitting attentively under faithful preaching. It is that moment among the assembled church when God speaks in monologue most clearly and completely. So I want to show you three motivations from Titus to prioritize the preached word of God under these three headings, the source of preaching, the content of preaching, and the result of preaching. The source, the content, the result. First, the source of preaching. When Paul speaks, he speaks with authority. He tells Titus in 
Chapter 1, verse 5, I left you in Crete so that you might put what what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Paul is not afraid to give directives. And then he issues a dozen commands to Titus in this little letter. And, And what does he command Titus to do? Speak authoritatively. Rebuke with authority. Teach sound doctrine. But what right does Paul have, or Titus, or any human being to speak authoritatively into the lives of others. We'll look at verses 1 through 3, where Paul grounds his authority. First, he calls himself a servant of God, literally a slave. I am a slave of God, he says, and an apostle of Jesus Christ. And the word apostle means one who is sent, a delegate, an envoy. He is sent by Jesus Christ. He is a messenger. He is an ambassador. He is carrying a message that is not his own. And all of this, he says, is for the sake of the faith of God's elect. That's his ministry priority, build faith, and he's sent with a message to do that. So Paul may come across as bold and arrogant to his opponents, but he is a servant, a slave, a delegate, and he dares not say or do anything except what God has commanded. He says in verse 3, God manifested his own promise of eternal life in his word. God is revealing, he's bringing to light, he is exposing to the world his promise of eternal life. How? In his word. And how is that word delivered? Through the preaching. Through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. So why did Paul preach with authority? Because he was under authority. Because he was commanded by God to preach. Therefore, not to preach, to be silent, to be timid, to modify the message in any way would have been to disobey God himself. God is the source that stands behind all true and faithful preaching. Preaching then is authoritative to the extent that it faithfully communicates the word of God and exposes the people of God to the person of God and the will of God and the promises of God. Only that preaching has any authority because God is the one who speaks. God is speaking. God is revealing himself to the world. And that's why Paul can refer to his message in chapter 2, verse 5 as the word of God or chapter 2, verse 10 as the doctrine of God, our Savior. God is the source that stands behind the message Paul preached. He's the source of all true preaching. And so biblically faithful preachers only speak with derived authority. We have none of our own. We just have a message that we've been entrusted with. And God's words then take on the very attributes of God. What God is like, his words are like. In Titus 1-2, when Paul speaks of God's promise of eternal life, he says the source of that promise is God who never lies. Why is his word true? Because he's true. He never lies. His word is the truth. Paul calls it the truth in 1.1 and 1.14. He calls his word trustworthy in 1.9 and 3.8. His word is good in 2.3. It's excellent and profitable. The glorious conviction that stands behind all faithful preaching and teaching of the word is this. God speaks. Not, Not just God spoke. God speaks. God is speaking today. Verse 2 says that God, who never lies, promised eternal life before the ages began. 
So God has certainly spoken in eternity past, before he even made the world, before there were even fallen human beings to redeem, God was already communicating within the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God was already speaking and promising and covenanting to save a people for himself. Think about that. And then, in time, God manifested that promise, verse 3, at the proper time, in his word, through the preaching. He announces it. He reveals it, which means that when you hear his promises proclaimed, when you hear it declared to you, if you're trusting in Jesus, your sins are forgiven, then you are hearing God speak, a promise he made before the ages began and which he is now speaking to you right now in this moment. Preaching is not quoting ancient, dusty quotes. It's God issuing his commands and his promises and his word, revealing his glory today. God reveals himself through the preaching of his word. And that's why biblically faithful preaching, it, it lays authoritative claims on us because it announces to us, this is what the God of the universe has said. This is what he has said. This is what he has promised even before the universe existed. Preaching is not lecturing, it's not suggesting, it's not opining or observing, it's not wondering out loud. Here's a thought for you. There's, there are churches that do things like that. I've seen places where they just you know, put a couch up here and a kind of panel of people and they just kind of think out loud about the Bible. It might be entertaining. But preaching is something <clears throat> different. It's, it's declaring. It's announcing, heralding. It's warning and exhorting. It's correcting and rebuking. It's God communicating himself to you. That's why we preach expositionally at Emmaus Road. That, that, that means in expository preaching, we seek to take the main point of a text of Scripture and unpack that to you as the main point of the sermon. Press that onto your Life, Because in preaching, God sets the agenda. We don't come with our minds made up like, this is what I want to say, so let me find a few verses that support what I want to say. We start with, what does the text say? I have no idea what I'm going to say on Sunday until I get into the text and sit under it. We, we, we don't come with our minds made up. We come to God's word. We sit under his word. We wrestle with his word to discern the meaning of it. We labor to faithfully communicate the implications of God's word to you. And so we prioritize preaching because it's through the faithful preaching of God's word that God asserts his own authority in our lives. Second, the content of preaching. What, what is the message? The, the source is God himself. What is the message that God has commissioned his church to proclaim to the world? Well, we've already seen in verses 2 and 3 the preaching with which Paul was entrusted by command of God was God's gracious promise of eternal life to undeserving, ill-deserving rebels who actually deserved eternal death. And then in chapter 2.15, when Paul says to Titus, declare these things, what are these things that he's talking about? Declare these things. What things? Well, if you look at the verses right before that, this is what he says. Chapter 2.11, for the grace of God has appeared 
bringing salvation for all people. Jump down to verse 13. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. We call that the gospel because it is good news. It's the only hope for the world that the grace of God has appeared. And it has appeared in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ gave himself up. He died willingly, laid down his life for what purpose? To what end? To save you. To redeem you. To redeem you from your lawlessness, your rebellion, your slavery to sin. To purify you, to wash away the stain of all of your despicable, damnable sin. He gave himself for you, to make you his own, to possess you, and to be your king and your savior forever. Chapter 3, verse 8, when he says to Titus, I want you to insist on these things, to assert these things with confidence and authority, and don't let anyone disregard you or ignore you. What things? What things? Back up to chapter 3, verse 3. These things. Titus, we ourselves... We, ourselves, were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Doesn't that sound awful? And yet we can all relate, can't we? You know exactly what he's talking about. Because we ourselves were once all those things. But, you've probably heard it said, two sweetest words in scripture, but God. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, just, just think for a second, the goodness of God to who? Fools, the disobedient, slaves to sin, The malicious, the envious, those who hate others and those who are hated by others and they deserve it because they are awful people. God's goodness, God's kindness to people like that, when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. He saved us. And He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. We had none. He saved us according to his own mercy. It's just sheer grace, forgiveness, full and free by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior so that being justified by grace, declared righteous as a gift, forgiven fully and freely, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We who were foolish and disobedient. That is the gospel. That is the good news. God saves sinners. God redeems the lawless. God takes the disobedient and he purifies them. And he trains them by his own grace and he makes them self-controlled and upright and godly. He sets people free from their slavery to sin, from their addictions, 
The gospel of Jesus Christ is the message that the church proclaims to the world. And the content, then, of all biblically faithful preaching will always be Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That is the only message that we have. Who He is and what He did to save sinners and what it means for you, that's the message that we proclaim. And tragically, a lot of what's called preaching misses that. If a sermon is full of moral commands and five ways to improve your marriage and three tips for a better life, but it doesn't point you to Jesus Christ and His death and His resurrection as your only hope, it's not preaching. Such preaching may urge you to try harder, do better, but it leaves you, you know that feeling, right? Just condemned, exhausted, hopeless, because it's not offering you grace. Preaching is God communicating His grace to you in the person of Jesus Christ. Always giving you hope in Jesus. Gospel-saturated, Christ-exalting preaching holds out Jesus Christ as the foundation of everything. After Paul gives specific practical instructions, I mean, he has moral imperatives in this letter. And all through chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, he addresses specific people in the church by group. Old men, old women, young men, young women, slaves. And for each of them, he has instructions how they should live, what kind of lives of godliness they should conduct. And yet all of it, when we get to verse 11, he anchors it all in the gospel with these words, for the grace of God has appeared. And that little word, for, that's the anchor. It, it indicates the ground, the foundation of the claim. Everything I just said about how people should live as Christians, here's why. Because the grace of God has appeared. Bringing salvation for all people. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. That is why. Why should young men and old men be sober-minded and dignified? Why should old women be reverent? Why should young women love and submit to their husbands and nurture their children and work diligently in their homes? Why should slaves honor their masters? Because the grace of God has appeared, because of the gospel. Paul does the same thing again in chapter 3. Why should we live as Christians? Because the grace of God has appeared. The content of biblically faithful preaching is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ himself and Jesus Christ alone is good news for the world. And so we prioritize preaching because it's through preaching that God reveals his glory and his grace to you. Finally, the result of preaching. In preaching, God speaks. He's the source. Through preaching, Christ saves. He is the content. And the result of it all is that you are changed. That, that's God's purpose in preaching. The thrust of Titus is that sound doctrine is not merely content to master. It's not just information to transfer between heads. Sound doctrine is truth that will transform your life. It is grace that will empower godliness in you Monday through Friday. It's for everyday life. The problem in Titus with foolish controversies and Endless quarrels and false doctrine is that all of it, according to chapter 3, verse 9, is it's unprofitable. It's worthless. It does nothing. It's powerless to save you. It can't change you. It can't help you. But sound doctrine, on the other hand, that gets worked out in our actual lives when we trust God and take Him at His word. 
According to Titus 2.12, the grace that saves is the very same grace that transforms, that trains, that changes. It's the same grace. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, and training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. The grace of God trains you. It changes you. It affects you. It leaves you different than you were before. It trains you to do two, to do two things, to put off ungodliness, worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. It changes your speech, according to Titus 2.3 and 3.2. It changes your demeanor, makes you dignified, reverent, kind, well-pleasing, courteous to all people. These are things Paul mentions throughout the letter. It changes your relationships. It changes your marriage and your parenting. It changes the way that you work. When you sit week after week under the preaching of God's word, there, there will not be any aspect of your life that's left unaddressed. Under the preaching of God's word, God himself will change you. In Titus, Paul, who is always earnest to remind everyone, we are saved by grace, through faith, not by our works. We are not saved by works. And yet, one of the repeated emphases in the letter to Titus is good works. We're not saved by good works, and yet, 2.14, Jesus died to redeem us from lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. In chapter 3, verse 1, Christians are to be ready for every good work. In 3.8, they are to be careful to devote themselves to good works because the same grace that saves you is the grace that trains you and changes you and affects you. Preaching that publicly proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ and all of its implications for your life, that is the engine that drives the activity of the church. Preaching that takes the main point of a text of scripture and takes that to be the main point of the sermon and presses that onto our lives like a coat of paint, like a like a bandage, just presses it over our lives. That, that is the fire that fuels the church's life and mission. And so that informs how we think about our response to preaching. Think about it like this. Following a church service, probably common to maybe come up at lunch with your family or your friends, what do you think of the sermon? What do you ask one another after a Sunday worship gathering? What do you ask your wife or your kids or your friends or your, your roommates? If we ask that question, what did you think of the sermon? You might just want to hear, what did you get out of it? Oftentimes, kind of what we're asking is, how did the preacher do? Were you impressed? Were you entertained? Did he keep your attention? I've heard it said that in... British Reformed circles, I don't know how long ago, a couple centuries, the regular question asked of someone coming from church used to be this, how did you get on under the preaching of God's word? How did you get on under the preaching of God's word? What, what did it do to you? Not how did the preacher do, what did the word of God do to you today? Like, were you convicted were you encouraged? Were you helped? Were you reminded? What happened to you today when you sat with the people of God 
and God spoke. I'd love for that to be the question that characterizes our church. We ask one another, how did you hold up when God was speaking to us today? That's what we do weekly in our discipleship huddles. That's why that's a central rhythm for the members of our church where we ask each other, we take the text that was preached the Sunday before and we ask one another, what's God saying to you? How does this get lived out and applied in your life? Because we don't want to just be hearers of the word. It's way too easy. And today of all times in history, you can listen to this sermon and you can throughout this week tune into podcasts and listen to 10 other preachers who are way better than I am. You can hear and hear and hear and hear and you can attend Bible studies all over the place. But if you're not being changed by the word, it's all pointless. It didn't do what God sent it to do, which was change you. You don't need 10 sermons this week. You need one that you live out. It's not how much truth you know. It's how much truth you live. How did you do under the preaching of God's word? Because God is speaking. No other communication. I mean, it's, it's a humbling thing to stand here. And you'd be tempted to think, of course, you would say things like this about preaching. It's your livelihood. That's a fair point. My only defense would be, what else could a delegate, an ambassador do? You're certainly not going to show up and say, you know, I have a message and it's not very important. This is God's word. My words carry no weight. You, you have, should have no interest in my thoughts. But to the extent that God's word is opened up, then we all care. And, and there's just no other communication in the world like preaching. Nothing else that implicates us. Nothing else that lays claims on us, right? TED Talks, their tagline is, uh, ideas worth spreading. And they might be interesting and inspiring, Podcasts are convenient. You can put your own headphones in or listen in your car while you drive by yourself. You can listen at double speed if you're in a hurry. You can turn it off when you're done and find a new one. Academic lectures might be informational, educational. Even, hear me out, even personal Bible reading and group Bible studies don't replace the preaching of God's word. The the Holy Spirit uniquely uses the preached word, the proclaimed word, the authoritative enunciation of God's word to transform God's elect. Through preaching, God himself comes. God himself encounters us. God himself lays claims on us. So so if you belong to the church of the living God, then think about this. You belong to a community of saints who all sync our schedules together to be in this place every week at this time Under the proclamation of God's word, the same word. We all receive the same word at the same time with the intent to believe it and obey it, to bear fruit by it. During the preaching of God's word, we, and and this is one of the things I love about serving with a team of elders because I get to sit under the preaching of God's word at least as often as I also preach it. I'm also under the word regularly. So I can say, we, we sit During the preaching of God's word, we just sit in silence and receive from God. Think about how unique this is, what's happening right here in our world today. Where else do people just shut up and listen? What is Twitter and Facebook and comment and argue and respond and share your opinion? And we're all about expressing our 
view. Everything in modern education and progressive pedagogy is about participation, interaction, engagement, collaboration. Students have to share their opinions. They have to ha find their voice. Everything in media and marketing is about keeping you entertained and engaged. And then you show up to a church where we preach for 40 to 45 minutes and just sit and listen. In their book, Preach, Mark Dever and Greg Gilbert write, the sermon as monologue, one person speaking while others listen, is both an accurate and a powerful symbol of our spiritual state and God's grace. For one person to speak God's word while others listen is a depiction of God's gracious self-disclosure and of our salvation being a gift. It's a reminder to us. God's not asking, what do you think? What do you bring? What can you contribute? He's just saying, I have all the grace you need. I've provided it in Christ. He died for you. You're mine. And we just receive. Freely we receive. So the posture of the church, the bride of Christ, is just attentive submission. It's captured in Samuel's response when he was a boy and God called his name and he responds, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. It's captured in Mary's response when the angel Gabriel told her she would bear the Christ child and she says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. That is the response of the church every week. I'm the servant of the Lord. May it be to me according to your word. And so we prioritize preaching because through preaching, God transforms. God empowers. God changes us. How does God strengthen and establish the faith of his people? How does he protect his church and build his church? How does he disciple the nations? He's given us a message to proclaim, to announce, to declare. And he's faithful to assert himself and his grace in your life through the preaching of his word. And may it never return to him void, but bear much fruit in your life. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you're not silent left us on our own. We marvel at your wisdom that in a world that demands signs and proof and evidence, you have purposed, you've willed to speak through finite and fallible messengers, your infallible word. so that all of our confidence would be in you, not in any man, just in you and the sheer glory and power of your gospel and what a gospel it is. May we be changed as you meet with us today. We can't wait to be here next week and do it all again. We look forward to hearing from you. We are your bride. Speak, Lord. Your bride is listening. Amen.